Turn, if you would, to the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew. Yeah, Friday morning, uh, my daughter and Teresa and I were in Panera's down on Hewlin, and there were some uh, highway patrolmen in there, and I asked them if they were here for the funeral, and they said, no, they were here to answer calls so the Fort Worth police could go to the funeral. So, um, today's lesson is interesting because it's actually a repeat. Last week, we talked about uh, the process for seeking reconciliation with a brother who has sinned against you. You go to them individually. If they repent, life is great. If not, then you take a buddy or two with you. If they don't repent, then you go to the church, etc., etc. We talked about all of that last week in the context of church discipline. And we kept hinting at the rest of the chapter, which is about forgiveness. Because if they do repent, you have to forgive them. And not only do you have to mouth the words, I forgive you, You have to forgive them from your heart. And we're going to talk about that passage today. But the reality is we've already covered this passage. If you remember, however many months ago it was, we were were going through the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we went to this passage to talk about that. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a passage about divorce. And when we talked about that, we went to the first part of chapter 19. So in one sense, we've already covered this. So my cowardly idea was just to skip them and go on to the next passage, but we're going to review them anyway because they're rather important. Forgiveness is very important. Divorce is very controversial. So, hopefully we'll make it through. Picking up in verse 21 of chapter 18. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. We've just had this discussion. Somebody sins against you. You go to them. They repent. And you go, great, my brother is back, life is good, the relationship is restored, I forgive you. And guess what? Next week they do the same thing. And you go to them again. You did it again. Yeah, you're right, I'm sorry, I repent. Okay, you forgive them twice. The next week they do it again. And Peter says, how many times do I need to forgive them Is there a limit to this? And he proposes a very large number, seven. Do I have to forgive them seven times? Now, in Jewish numerology, seven was completion. It was great, big number, seven. Is that how many times I have to forgive them? And Jesus says, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Times. Now, some people translate that verse 70 times 7, which would be what? 490. 
Or this translation says 77 times. Now, there's a big difference between 77 and 490, right? I'm a math major. I know that. The reality is Jesus is giving them a number that if you can count that high, you should stop counting. Okay? If you know the 65th time that you've forgiven somebody... You're not forgetting about it. You're not forgiving them. You're not sitting there going, 65th time, 77 times, 12 more times, and you're toast. If that's what you're doing, you may be able to count to seven. You know, I can remember the last seven things you did to me. But if you can remember 77, something's wrong. You're taking notes. How many times, Peter asked, do I have to forgive somebody? Seven times. And Peter thought he was being very magnanimous. Seven whole times. No, Jesus says. And then he's going to give them a parable. He's going to give them a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 10,000 talents. I like the ESV study Bible. It had a note down there. Just a quick calculation in today's terms about what 10,000 talents is equivalent to. A talent is roughly 20 years of wages for a day laborer. So it says you work 2,000 hours a year, $15 an hour. We're just talking common day labor for 20 years. And then you multiply that by 10,000 and you end up at about $6 billion. $6 billion. The servant is brought to the master and the master says, I'm checking my records and it shows here that you owe me $6 billion. I'll take a check right now. Now, we have no discussion, no discussion of what the guy did to get into that much debt to the master. No discussion at all. But there's also no discussion about whether he really owes it. He really does owe it. And the man says, I don't have $6 billion. And the master says, okay, I'm going to sell you into slavery. I'm going to sell your whole family into slavery. And I'm going to take all that money and apply it to the debt. Now, what happens to the other $5,999,900,000? You get the picture, right? But at least the individual knows that the master is serious. I'm going to sell you into slavery to pay off this debt. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. I've always been fascinated by that sentence. Give me a little more time, give me to the end of the week, and I'll bring you the six billion. It's not happening. 
He's lying to him. Well, he's not lying. He's just making up any words he can to get out of his debt because he doesn't want to be sold into slavery. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The master looks at him and says, you owe me six billion dollars, but I'm going to write it off. I'm going to take that debt you owe me and I'm going to scratch through it. Did you have a comment? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, in this whole thing, there's hierarchies, okay? This probably, if I were speculating, and it doesn't speculate, so don't do it, you know, this is the business manager of the house, who would also be a, a, a slave, a servant. Or it could be any, either one. Somehow he owed the money. He had defrauded. He had mismanaged the funds. He had just borrowed it from the books, you know? The master's investing a billion here. I'll borrow a billion from the master and I'll invest it. The investment goes bad. The master's, okay, you get the picture right. Lots of things could have happened. But he worked for the king and he owed him big bucks. But the master said, the king said, I forgive you. Write off that debt. Life is good. Let's keep with the parable. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. A hundred denarii is still a reasonable amount of money. It's a hundred days worth of wages for a day laborer. Back to our illustration of working fifteen hours, I mean fifteen dollars an hour, two thousand uh, hours a year. It's about twelve thousand dollars. So we're not talking chump change, but we're not talking six billion dollars. He finds a servant who owes him twelve thousand dollars, and he says, "Pay up." And not only does he say, "Pay up," he grabs him by the throat and says, "Pay up now." He actually threatens violence against him. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. You know, he probably could have at some point in time repaid the debt. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Debtor's prison. It used to actually be very common, and you think, this doesn't really make any sense. If I put you into prison, you can't work, so you can't make money, so you can't pay the debt. But it also clarifies and crystallizes in your mind the seriousness of this, and it encourages you to encourage your family to go raise the money. That's the idea behind it, right? I may not be working right now, but I'm stuck in this jail Wife, children, go find anybody you can, get the money, pay off the debt. And that's what the man did. He threw him into prison until he could pay off the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And here it comes. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. You ready for this next sentence? You're not ready for it. You are not ready for it. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is he talking about here? How many times should I forgive somebody who has done me wrong? And Jesus turns this on its head. Here's the question that you have to address in your own mind. What has God forgiven me? Now, if you believe that that is a little thing that God has forgiven you, then you will feel no sense of obligation to feel those or to forgive those around you who have really done you wrong. But if you accept the fact that you owed a debt that you could not pay, if you had committed a crime, a sin against God that you could under no circumstances ever, ever pay back, if you acknowledge that, and if you acknowledge that God has forgiven you, what should you do when you come in contact with those who have done you wrong? And the answer is, forgive them. Yes? His observation is that it says brother. Remember, Last week's lesson, we talk about when a brother sins against you, and we go through this process. And we discuss the fact that this is probably a believer who has sinned. I mean, you, you are aware of the fact, right, that we as believers sin, right? Just put that out on the table. I had a very brief discussion about whether that process would work with an unbeliever, and you can go through pieces of it, except when you get down to appearing before the church, the church has no authority over the unbeliever. Okay, It is talking about a believer. The question is, is this passage only dealing with how you should respond to a fellow Christian? Hmm. What do we think? We should take a vote. No, we shouldn't take a vote. <laughs> Voting never works. I would tend to take a more broad interpretation of this passage. I would tend to accept the fact that when a believer or an unbeliever comes to you and repents, and unbelievers do say, I'm sorry, then we are under an obligation to forgive them, not because of any inherent worth in them or their fancy words they gave asking for forgiveness, but because we acknowledge what God has done for us. 
Now, if I take the broader interpretation, that certainly means that the brother, the fellow believer interpretation is a done deal, okay? If a fellow believer comes to you and says, please forgive me, that's an obvious. You have to do that, right? Now, there's lots of things to look at here, but let's back up just a moment to what started this six months ago when we covered this passage. The Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And to me at first that sounds backwards because it sounds like somehow I am earning my mercy by giving mercy to someone else. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. I was merciful, therefore I received mercy. That's the implication of the passage. The question, though, is which comes first? In this parable, it is quite obvious that the servant who owed $6 billion received mercy first. Then, when he encountered his fellow servant who owed him $12,000, he ought to have extended mercy on the basis of the mercy that he had received. So, will God forgive your sins if you refuse to forgive the sins of those who sin against you? Oh, shoot. You didn't want that question, did you? The easy answer is, well, of course. He forgives everything, right? He forgives all of our sins. He forgets about them, separates them as far as the east from the west. Life is good. But if we're unwilling to forgive, what does that demonstrate about the condition of our heart? What does it demonstrate about my understanding of what God has done for me? What does it demonstrate about the magnitude, the relative magnitude of the debt that I owed God versus the debt that someone else owes me? And what does it demonstrate about my understanding of that relative size? Here is my contention. If I believe that I sinned this much against God, just a little bit, God, give me some time. I could pay it off. We're lying, but we believe that. So I come to church and I say, God, okay, I've done this much sin. I've told you before in here, my mother was teaching a class one time on sins that we have, the ones that kind of hang around us. And she had given this great lesson. I assume it's a great lesson. I didn't hear it, but I assume it's a great lesson. And she says, okay, what is your abiding sin? And this sweet elderly lady said, I just don't write enough letters. <laughs> now, maybe she should write more letters. 
But if you think that you're not prideful, you're not angry at people, you're not, you're not, you're... If you think that you were a pretty good catch for God. <laughs> I've said this before in here, right? You begin to think, I could have paid that off. Master, give me a week and I'll pay off the six billion. The master knows you can't. You cannot possibly do that. And when you accept that, then your heart is ready to receive the mercy and grace of God. But until you get to that point, you are going to continue to believe that you can do it. Yeah, I'm a Christian because I work real hard at it. I, I did what God wanted me to do, and I, I paid all my debt off, and I'm good. I did, I, 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 I did it. <laughs> and until you, until you get past that point, I would contend you have never really received the grace of God. So which comes first, the mercy of God or the mercy that I am called to demonstrate to those around me? The answer is God always comes first. Why do we forgive those who sin against us? Because in any relative terms, in any relative terms, here is our debt to God and here is our problem with those around us. I have a rival. <laughs> it is interesting. We all struggle with forgiveness because we are convinced that when you said that unkind word to me, you did it on purpose. You did it on purpose, and it is a really big thing. And we neglect to consider what God has done for us. The passage is very strong. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What does it mean to forgive someone from the heart? Well, first off, it means you really mean it. Okay? I don't know about you, but you know, one of my children would get caught doing something and immediately they'd start going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And a little parrot, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They don't have a clue. They have no heart change. They just know that if I say these magic words, you're obligated to do something about it. No. Now, I'll throw you in a little secret, though. God sees the heart. I don't. When my kids would do something, I would tell them, 
I can only judge the situation on what I see and know. I don't know the condition of their heart. I can have some strong guesses, but <laughs> I don't know. God knows. What does that mean? God knows if you've truly forgiven somebody or if you're just keeping record. That was the 65th time. You've got 12 more to go and you're toast. Guess what? We haven't forgiven them from our heart. Now, at this point, everybody wants to talk about all the caveats to this. Yeah, but what if I, what if, what if they done me wrong again and again and again and again and again. When you forgive someone, it does not necessarily mean you put them back into the position that they were in prior to the receiving the forgiveness. It's not necessarily pretending that it didn't happen. For example, somebody robs you of a large sum of money and you call the cops because you know they did it and they're found guilty. And they're standing there in the courtroom, and they finally do say, I'm sorry I took it. You as a believer have to say, I forgive you. But you can still send them to prison. I mean, I'm not, this isn't really a joke. There are still consequences associated with the actions. And those consequences still may have to be dealt with. If somebody is lying to you, the next time they talk to you, you may not necessarily believe them. But you have no animosity in your heart toward them. We're just back to the book of Proverbs where we're talking about living wisely, not as fools. So, forgiveness does not necessarily imply that you pretend it never happened. You know, we're real big on this forgive and forget. What it does mean, though, is that your heart does not occupy its time contemplating how to get revenge. It doesn't contemplate how to get back at them for what they did to you. It doesn't keep a record and know that, ah, you've only got 12 more times, then I'm going to zap you. It's hard enough, it is hard enough to forgive people for what we would consider the everyday slights. You know, they didn't talk to me. I went into the room and they didn't talk to me. I'm mad at them. Don't laugh. We do this all the time. Every one of us does this. They cut me off in traffic. They did that on purpose. Probably not. But it feels so good to wallow in that anger because we don't understand what God has done for us. Chapter 19. That was the easy half of the lesson. (laughs) Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Now remember, this is the context. The Pharisees 
once again, because they've done this numerous times, and they will do it numerous times, come up to him to ask him a question that they know he couldn't possibly give an answer to. You know, we've talked about taxation, we've talked about this, we've talked about that, we'll have more discussions about the resurrection of the dead. All these questions, they come to him to ask him. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In the Jewish tradition of the time, there were basically two schools of thought. One school said, I can get rid of my wife if she burns the dinner. <laughs> if I find anything, if I find anything that doesn't suit me, all I've got to say is the magic words three times. No, I'm not going to say it. All you have to say is, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it's over. And you're gone. For any and every reason. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought says, no, only for grave sexual immorality can you divorce your wife. Now, let's just look at this passage in modern ideas to begin with. It's talking about a man divorcing his wife. It doesn't really say anything about a wife divorcing her husband. In the economy of the time, the wife's livelihood was very much tied up in the livelihood of her husband. And if I am a husband and I get rid of my beloved, she's on the street and she's got nothing. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't own any land. She doesn't own anything. And economically, she's in a bad way because I have divorced her. So, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, okay, where do you fall into this battle? Where do you end up? Now, why did they test him on this? Well, first off, there's two schools, and they want to know which school he's in. Okay? But remember what got John the Baptist in trouble. John the Baptist didn't get in trouble for baptizing people. The Pharisees hated him, but hey, what's wrong with that? What got him in trouble is when he told Herod... You cannot marry your brother's wife. The fact that you divorced your wife and she divorced her husband doesn't mean you can marry her because you can't do that. And that ticked off Herod, so he threw, her in, threw him in prison. That ticked off Herod's wife, so she had him beheaded. Guess what? All we've got to do is get Jesus to say Herod's marriage is invalid and Herod will take care of him. Life is good. Whew, we're set. Jesus, what about divorce? Is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Period. Wait, excuse me, he didn't answer the question. 
He answered the question by telling them the purpose of marriage. Because you see, we want to begin a discussion about divorce without an understanding of what marriage is. Marriage is the union of one man and one woman in a covenant relationship till death do you part. That is God's intention. Jesus goes back to the first several chapters of the book of Genesis, the first several chapters of the entire Bible to explain to them the purpose of marriage. I would contend today that our society doesn't understand marriage at all. First off, we believe it is a human construct. Society decides what marriage is. If I want marriage to be this, then by golly, it's that. If I want marriage to be the union of two men or two women, that's fine. It's just a human construct. Or we believe that marriage is just for my gratification. You know, I am pleasant and happy being around Teresa, and if tomorrow I'm not, well, that's the end of that. Because it's not meeting my needs. What is the purpose of marriage? Why did God invent this in the first place? Well, let me give you some of the really good wrong answers to begin with. No, they're right. They're good answers. Number one, companionship. It is not good that Adam be alone. I will make a helpmeet suitable for him, and God created Eve. Marriage is for the creation and raising of children. If you jumped over to the Malachi passage dealing with divorce, which I assume the, the sermon series will deal with, as was mentioned, we're starting a sermon series on the book of Malachi. It says marriage is for the raising of godly children. It is the incubator that God has set to, in place to raise the next generation of believers. So we have companionship, we have the raising of children. All that's good stuff. What is the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage is to show the relationship between God and His church. Wait a minute. Where does that fit in? It is a picture of a covenant relationship so that you and I can see what God's relationship, God the groom, the church the bride, and what that relationship looks like. And it is a covenant relationship till death do you part. Hmm. It is a picture of what is a reality between Christ and His church. Until we understand what marriage is, we cannot and will not understand the significance of divorce. Now, as I said at the beginning, divorce is a very difficult subject. And let me tell you why it's difficult. Because there are those in, of you in this room today who have been through divorce. There are those of you whose children have been through divorce. There are those of you whose grandchildren have been divorced. Your friends have been we, it. It's everywhere. 
And what we would love to say is it's just not that big a deal. We really would because that helps me when I'm dealing with my friend. You know, just don't worry about it. God will forgive you. The scripture says it's a big deal. It says it's a big deal. Why? Because it's a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. So, Jesus starts out. They come to him and they test him. Can you divorce your wife for any and every reason? And he says, let me tell you what marriage was intended to be. And this is how I envision it. I'm just making this up, right? He gives them the answer and he turns and walks away. That is the answer. God's plan is the answer. And then they stop him. But wait a minute. You didn't answer the question. They said to him, verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Are you contradicting Moses? Moses said, you write out a divorce certificate, you give it to her, and you're okay. You're contradicting Moses. Who do you think you are? God? Well, yeah. (laughs) He said to them, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Why did Moses allow them to write a certificate of divorce and have a divorce because of your hard-heartedness. Let's think about that for a moment. I'm a wonderful person, you're a wonderful person, and we're going to divorce. I'm okay, you're okay, it just didn't work out. No. Why did it not work out? Because of the hardness of our hearts. Let me tell you what would happen. I wanted to divorce my wife. Eh, sort of. I just throw her out of the house. And at that point, she's in this kind of limbo. She isn't married to me, because I just kicked her out of the house, and I'm the head of the house, so I can do that. But she can't marry anybody else, because... And Moses finally said, you have to write down on paper her state to free her of her economic dependency upon you, and you're not fulfilling it. You've got to release her, and that's what the divorce paper certificate was. It was not ever God's plan. But because of the hardness of your heart, So all of a sudden, Jesus is turning this around on them. It's not about Herod. It's not about Moses. It's about you. It's about you and the hardness of your heart. That's why God allowed Moses to allow you to write a certificate of divorce. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, let's divide out two different problems right now, okay? Number one is divorce, and number two is the right to remarry. 
because in our society, the two go hand in hand all the time. We just assume that if you have a divorce, you will then be free and allowed to go remarry. What does this passage tell us? Whoever divorces their wife except for sexual immorality. That word is porneia. That's the word that we get pornography from. What does it cover? Well, it covers exactly what this thing says, sexual immorality. But what does it mean? There are several schools of thought about this in contemporary circles. Let me just give you the one that our church probably would agree on. Sexual immorality is sexual unfaithfulness on the part of one spouse in a marriage after the wedding. Your husband, your wife, runs off and has an affair. You are released. You have the right to dissolve the marriage. Sexual immorality is sexual activity outside of the marriage during the marriage time. That's what it means. As such, we talk about the offending party and the offended party, one of which is then free to go remarry, one of which is not free to go remarry because they are the offending party, sexual immorality. Let me propose an even stricter view of this, though. There are those who would believe that this word porneia in this situation means sexual immorality that would invalidate the marriage in the first place. Herod married his brother's wife. That was not a marriage to begin with in the eyes of God. That was an invalid marriage and it doesn't work. So if I, this is where the Catholic Church gets the idea of annulment, which is kind of strange when you have somebody being married for 30 years and they get an annulment. They didn't know what they were getting into? Yeah, I don't know. But it is the acknowledgement, it is the acknowledgement that if you, that if Herod, for example, got into a marriage that was an illegitimate marriage to begin with, that in that case, a divorce is expected, actually. Now, why is this a stricter case? Because it doesn't acknowledge, it doesn't accept the fact that sexual immorality within marriage is of necessity a reason for divorce. And this gets real hard real quick. When we do marriage mentoring, my beloved and I, one of the questions that is on the form that they fill out is, if you found out that your spouse was cheating on you, would you divorce them immediately or whatever the question is? And it is interesting because the right answer is no, but you understand that most people say yes. There is no obligation to divorce a spouse who is engaged in sexual activities outside of the marriage. You would love to think, oh wait, if a brother sins against you, you go to them, you take two with you, you break it to the church. You would love to think that that, that relationship could be reconciled. But that's hard. That's really, really hard. But 
the Bible says over in 1 Corinthians when it's dealing with sexual immorality within a marriage that you can, but you don't have to dissolve the marriage. Everybody wants to ask the question then, what if my spouse is beating me to a pulp? Okay, let's just jump straight because there are those who concern, are concerned that the Christian understanding of marriage, all it does is give people the right to beat each other up, which is kind of silly, but you begin to understand that, you know, if I say you've got to stay with your spouse no matter what, if he or she is beating me up, you're saying I've got to take it. There's nothing in the scripture that says you have to stay there and be a punching bag. Now, in my ideal world, the church would deal with that. The church would deal with that. But we have seen in all the scandals that have come up recently that the church has a desire at times just to sweep it all under the rug and pretend that it doesn't happen. And that doesn't work. Never has, never will. So I would contend that there may be times where you need the legal separation in order to protect you and or your children from an abusive spouse. You may need that. You may need that protection. Does that necessarily mean you then have the right to remarry? And that's the harder question. We tend to believe, well, it boils back down to the idea of we're convinced God wants me to be happy. However I define happiness, right? I'm going to define happy to be this way. And God wants me to be happy. Therefore, if I'm divorced for whatever reason, I got a divorce because I just didn't like the person anymore. So I get a divorce and I want to remarry. Well, of course I should be able to because it would make me happy. God wants you to be holy. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have peace. He wants to, you to have these things. Happiness in earthly words is not necessarily on God's agenda for you. There are times when we have to bear with the circumstances in which God has put us. And it may not be the sweetest, kindest position. So... What is this answer to the Pharisees? The Pharisees ask, can I divorce for any and every reason? And the answer is no. Go ahead. Leave. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I would contend that she doesn't necessarily have a right to remarry, okay? I mean, we don't practice annulment in the Protestant church, but that was my discussion about our understanding of happiness. And it's, it's, it's hard. That's what I'm telling you right now. It's really hard. In fact, that's what the disciples are going to say in the next passage. Just because... Your marriage didn't work out for whatever reason. It's not your fault. I, I know enough of marriages 
who one person has walked away, and it wasn't the other person's fault. It wasn't. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can then turn around and remarry. Maybe God will kill the other person off, and then you can remarry. (laughs) It's not the answer I want, okay? Go ahead. We talked about that last week, yeah. And even Ted ended up writing a book about it. Not about that particular thing, but about these verses. Right. But I thought it was interesting. Yeah. That, go ahead. Sure. Very involved. Huh? Oh, no. Not at all. I'm, I'm a lot firmer on that one. <laughs> well, I, I like the part, maybe God would kill me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Years, years ago, I, I was listening on the radio, and they were, and they were talking to a, uh, about Jewish divorces and the husband, the man, has to write a certificate out, and sometimes they just refuse to do it, because if I write it, I might have to return the dowry and all that stuff, and who wants to do that? I'll just kick him out of the house. And it said that sometimes the male members of the bride's family would take him to the local cemetery and remind him that widows do not need a certificate. (laughs) So... Let me just read the next passage, okay? No, no, because this is, this is the answer, sort of. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The disciples are sitting there going, This is really hard. You mean, if I marry Cruella de Vil, I'm stuck? Now, we could have a long discussion about not marrying Cruella DeVille, but the reality is, you may not know she's Cruella DeVille or he, whoever he is. I would love to think, I would love to think that all the warning signs are there and all that, but I know sometimes we don't know. So the disciples say, gosh, this is really hard. Guess what? This is really hard. The disciples aren't lying here. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, we know what physically being a eunuch is. You castrate a person and they're a eunuch. 
I'm going to take a guy and I'm, he's going to work in the harem for the king. And they castrate him to make sure that he's not fooling around with anybody in the harem. Is that what it's talking about? No, it's talking about the fact that there are some people who are just not meant to get married. Paul talks about this. Paul says some people aren't called to be married and that's okay. They can do great things for the kingdom if they're not married. It frees you up. It gives you more time. It gives you more resources. Go do it. But Jesus tells the disciples, most people are called to marriage. Most people are called to enter a marriage relationship. Why? Companionship, the raising of children, sex, whatever. That's what we're called to do. But, but, marriage is the picture of Christ and his relationship with his church, and it is meant to be a covenant relationship forever. Does that mean marriage is easy? No. All of us, all of us have lived long enough. We've talked with people about their marriages. We've talked to ourselves about our marriages. And we know it's hard. We know it's hard. So, what is the takeaway of all this? God wants you to stay married. God allows you, under certain circumstances, to obtain a divorce and remarry in the case of sexual immorality. There are other instances where separation may be necessary for the safety of the family, the safety of the children and or the spouse, and that's okay. Once again, in my perfect world, the church would handle that. As we know today, the church has failed at that miserably. But God's original intention is a husband and a wife living together in a covenant relationship. Now, what are the other problems that we have with this? And we are way out of time. There's just too much material here, though. I tell the couples, we tell the couples when we do marriage mentoring, that Almost everything you know about marriage is wrong. <laughs> because you learned it watching TV and watching movies. This is just true. We have this idea that marriage somehow is the honeymoon. And when the children start showing up and they're pooping and they're vomiting and all of that stuff that somehow marriage isn't working anymore. <laughs> and what do we do? We want to punch out. Or we grin and bear it because we think, well, there's no choice. No, that is life. That is life as God intended it. But we have this romantic image of what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is two sinners walking through life together, trying to do what God wants them to do, falling down. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. 
Why is this right after the passage about forgiving 77, 77,000 million times? Because that's where we live every day of our lives. The next question people want to ask, though, is, okay, I've got a divorce, and it wasn't the best reasons, and I've remarried. Is that sin right there? Well, it may have been, but what do we do about sin? We confess our sins, we repent, we seek God's mercy, and we move on. That's what we do. We don't sit there and break up the second one in order to somehow reconcile the first one. In fact, there's passages that says once you marry the second one, you can't go back to the first one. Don't even think about doing that. Now, it may be true that when you go to the second one, you begin to appreciate the first one more because, <laughs> but that's a whole different story. That's a whole different story. Let me conclude with this. This is a hard passage. The disciples knew it was a hard passage. This is one of those passages that, as a teacher, I can get here and tell you what the Word says, what I understand the Word to say. But when you get into a pastoral setting, dealing with you and the effects of the divorce in the lives of your children or your grandchildren, then it becomes a pastoral situation. And it doesn't invalidate the Word of God. But there are all kinds of issues that need to be worked through so that you can have a right relationship with God in the midst of, well, what is it? The hardness of our hearts. And that's what makes it difficult. It isn't God and His Word that makes it difficult. It's us and our hearts that make it difficult. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for your forgiveness of us. Thank you that when we owed so much, you paid that debt. May we learn to extend that grace and mercy to those around us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.